Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, certified prosthetist, 3D printing enthusiast, and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Fabrication Friday is an all-around fun time where I talk about 3D printing applications, conduct interviews with industry leaders, and much more. Come join us every Friday for an informational discussion around the evolution of the additive manufacturing field and how we utilize various digital workflows and 3D printing methods in our daily work at Ascent Fabrication. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fabrication Friday podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Joe Fairley, uh, the owner of Ascent Fabrication and overall 3D printing enthusiast. Um, today, I've got an awesome special guest here from Ascension. Uh, Nira Nagabandi here is uh, going to be talking through uh, from Ascension's inception of going from 3D printing and some uh, microwave applications to their now uh, high-speed extrusion 3D printer systems and materials. So, Nira, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. So, with uh, with Essentium, uh, you know, I was I was watching Essentium back in uh, my early days of 3D printing in 2015. Although I know there was a little bit more work that was done uh, a little bit before that. Can you take us through kind of the that birth of Essentium? I know there were a few people originally involved from um, who were students at Texas A&M University. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. Yeah, so basically Essentium started off as a materials company uh, doing R&D for uh, bigger companies. Uh, it was a bunch of material scientists, right? Um, Blake, Elisa, Ryan Vano kind of started off the company in 2013 and uh, by then, I think about by 2015, 16 timeframe, we wanted to be more uh, product focused and not just uh, R&D focused. That's when kind of joined hands with uh, Brandon Sweeney, who has been working on um, nanotube infused uh, interlayer bonding for like a high strength in 3D printed part, uh, applying that microwave energy. Um, so that's where about we started, okay, 3D printing is where we want to kind of, you know, um, establish and uh, our roots and grow from there. So since then, since that's about 2016 timeframe. Mm -hmm. And since then, we have been very heavily focused on um, building and creating new materials into uh, 3D printing world. For example, we introduced um, PCTG, a all-purpose very easy to print material that is also um, skin safe, actually. So okay. uh, good for check sockets and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, from there, we kind of, you know, made a lot of materials and realized there's not any open source printer out there. And uh, we started to kind of uh, join hands with uh, uh, more of a machine builders out of uh, California uh, who were building semiconductor machines in their past life. So we built our machines from there and introduced our first high-speed extrusion machine in 2019. And uh, there's a little bit of high-speed extrusion uh, science and background, which we can go a little detail later on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, from there, you know, uh, two years later, 2021, uh, we introduced our uh, dual head, basically the same frame of HSE, but with two heads. So you could kind of do multiple prints on the same build volume. And uh, um, yeah, we still 
uh, kind of uh, stay strong with printer design, printer building, and material uh, making. Okay, so you've got you know basic uh, it's FDM three D printing, right? F F F F FDM. Uh, yes. You know, that that filament layer by layer printing, right? So um, it you're not involved in any other three D printing processes, right? Just FDM based. Uh, currently, that's our products, Joe. Uh, yeah. We have announced our um, metals program uh, a year ago. We are about actually 14, 15 months into our metals program okay. uh, where we are using a blue laser with a wire uh, to kind of, um, you know, be more of a easier uh, deployable machine kind of situation. But we are about a year or two away before we can introduce any beta machines out there. Sure, sure. Okay. Well, that's interesting to know too. I didn't know that you're into the metal side of things. I feel like metal printing is getting to be, you know, quite, uh, I, I guess I wouldn't say saturated, but a lot more focused on recently, um, just because of, uh, you know, some of the advancements that have happened from, you know, a couple of different companies, Desktop Metal, Mark Forge, um, you know, looking at how quickly they can turn around, you know, metal parts um, and, you know, even getting into the, you know, fused filament fabrication of, of metal, you right. know, with like Ultimaker making yeah. some, some very green metal parts. Right. Um, so right, right. like what would, how are you, how are you guys approaching the, the metal side of things? Yeah, I think for us, uh, so uh, for us, the logic was uh, basically we are, like, you know, a big portion of our company is now also focused on machine building and right. technology, right? But when we look at our uh, growth prospects with our polymer printing, which is HSE or similar to FDM, FFF, big, our biggest customers live in aerospace and defense. Mm-hmm. Um, when we kind of survey and kind of look at what they're doing, one of the things they want on the metal world is having powder-based or binder jet machines. That's all good. Uh, where they can do in their, um, you know, fabrication facilities in very well situated cities, right? But all of these guys have unclean shops at every forward location that they don't have access to. Mm-hmm. So um, from from the survey from them, they all wanted a, a metal machine that they can get ready parts with minimal post-processing and that could be deployed, uh, right? Can I put a machine in Hawaii? Can I put a machine in Arizona where I don't have a depot, right? right? Um, so that's where it kind of uh, got us thinking. We kind of brainstormed a lot of ideas for about six months before we kind of decided what we want to do. And the logic was to kind of uh, continue to improve our um, offering to our main customers, which is aerospace defense, by getting rid of powder, right? And uh, keeping minimal post-process. So that's where we kind of jumped into laser-based wire okay. solution. You know, uh, pretty simple. You'll get very, very near net parts. And also we're kind of choosing our wire diameter very carefully where the resolution is as good as plastic printers. Um, that's, that's our thought process really. And, uh, yeah, once that is said, uh, it's about, okay, guys, let's do this. So. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
with the uh, kind of overhead costs that that I've heard about, you know, associated with some metal printing and just the equipment that you need, um, you know, the, the time that it goes from being a green part, you know, all the way through being debinded, um, you know, that's that's definitely a, a lot to undertake, you know, for especially some of these smaller metal parts that, you know, <laughs> might be, you know, for the amount of hours that go into the printing process might be cheaper just to have them, you know, fabricated traditionally, right? But, you know, with, right. your, with your point of being able to try to turn these parts around in a quicker fashion, um, you know, on, on site, you know, on their, um, on their premises of wherever they need that part. I mean, that's kind of leveraging, you know, the benefits of 3D printing there then. Right. No, exactly. That is the goal, Joe. Yeah. And, and to, actually, uh, we, we also uh, looked into kind of offering the, um, um, the filament based metal printing on our HSC. I mean, technically, it's an open source machine. You could buy this filament off BASF and kind of do it. Um, we have actually done it in the past in 2018. Uh, what we figured was uh, it wasn't viable for our customers overall. Exactly the reasons you just said. The sure. amount of uh, <laughs> investment that you need as a downstream. Well, okay, if I don't need in, uh, that investment, well, now I'm printing my green part, shipping it over to a different city and all that logistics involved. So, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty neat to hear that you guys are into that. Um, so take me through kind of how, you know, the idea for this high speed extrusion, you know, form of 3d printing came about, you know, what all is involved in that with your, with your couple machines. Yeah, no, definitely Joe. I think, a little, I, I don't want to kind of sound preaching here just because nowadays in the last year or so, there was like a couple more uh, high-speed filament printers out there. So it's not like uh, other people don't know about it now. Uh, but when you look back in 2016, uh, 2017 timeframe, uh, the standard was about printing about 30 millimeters, 40 millimeters per second. Um, that was like a typical standard, right? And maybe on some materials on a point to nozzle, maybe you're going 70. Um, but when we looked at it and kind of said, okay, we want to make our machine. Well, we don't want to create another industrial machine that is a replica of other ones, right? So the two important pieces for us was one, keep it open architecture or open, you know, source kind of, you could, choose any material you want. So give all the levers to the customer, number one. Number two, make it next level. By that, okay, it should be at least three to four times the speed of what is there in the industry now. Um, so as part of that, we had to kind of, there are three big components to it. One is the backend software. Uh, the two is the motion system. Number three is the nozzle dynamics itself. Uh, we had to kind of reinvent all of this at that time. Uh, what, on the software side, the piece is now you're streaming a lot of data and the controllers need to be processing and constantly making sure all the pieces are in the correct place at any given point of time. That means you know your controls need to be efficient. Your controls need to also take into the vibrations into account. Uh, your controls also need to make sure your E-axis, nozzle temperature, X and Y and Z, bed temperature, all of this are kind of taking it four to five times faster than previously. 
Um, so we had to kind of redo the controls, architecture, taking into vibrations, everything into account. Um, that was number one. Number two was the motion system. So when you're moving at this crazy amount of speeds, uh, we are talking about six, 700 millimeters per second, mm-hmm. uh, right? The biggest piece we were prospecting at that time was where, well, you know, we don't want someone to replace belts and pulleys every six months. Right. Uh, can you get high precision belt and pulley system up to one micron? Yes. But still, when you move that fast every day, you're replacing that. Um, so we are like, okay, move away. What can we do? That's where we went into uh, linear motors and linear drives, which was also fairly new. That What that gave us is a gantry system that is maintenance-free for five to 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. And also that can carry heavier loads, high momentum, because at these speeds, you're also carrying high momentum. Now, you don't have to, these are much stiffer, so you can be very free of, uh, would my belt sag over time? Would my head actually change the as it goes from between to all of that? Mm-hmm. So a little bit of reinvention of gantry system there, which we really adapted from semiconductor industry, but it worked out well. The third piece was nozzle itself. So we had to melt a lot of material a lot more quickly. Right. Uh, so that was the other piece where we kind of introduced our trademark puzzle, we call it, which is hot heated nozzle. Yeah. Uh, it was all in one piece. I, in the, I think, you know, at the time and even now, most hot ends and you'd look at it as like nozzle is a separate piece from uh, the hot end, which is like the melting reservoir versus and now it transfers into nozzle and that prints, right? Mm-hmm. What we did was we kind of oh, removed all the mass from it and said, okay, we're going to have a single shank that's going to heat up. Also, it's going to be the nozzle. Um, that way we were able to pump a lot of heat into the nozzle super quickly and in situ on demand. And um, yeah, we, we we went with a very heavy heater, direct heating into the material. So these are the three big things. Um, it was pretty challenging to kind of go through the iterations and nothing existed out there. And, uh, you know, we kind of rebuilt from scratch. So, right. um, it was, it was exciting, but those were the three things we kind of, uh, the big pieces for us to make a HSC. Yeah. I mean, that, that definitely makes sense with, you know, trying to control the, the heating a little bit more fine tunely. Um, and then I guess my next question would be, well, what on the cooling side of things did you do to <laughs> make sure that some of these materials are, you know, printing at, at that high quality? Yeah. So I think the good piece, the lucky piece for us, Joe, is, I mean, we, we didn't do much differently, really. We got a concentric fan, which seemed like a pretty standard on machines like Ultimaker back then or Race 3D. I think they all had fans. Sure. Uh, we we used a little bit more powerful fan to kind of demand more air, but lucky for us is, um, at even at that speed, three D printing still like the plastic welding was not enough to weld uniformly across layers anyway. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you're keeping so much heat when you're printing, you know, uh, more than three inch parts. You're not keeping enough heat anyway, so it wasn't like we had to dissipate too much heat. Sure. It only became critical when we are doing like tiny features, uh, less than an inch features, right? Right. Um, 
But uh, again, I think, you know, we did, we kind of took a very standard approach there, a little bit beefier fan, but other than that, um, yeah, we were, I think, uh, still lucky. There were room, there was room on the heat, heating side. We, there was, there was less heat to be lost overall. So. Right. No, that's, that's good to hear. And, um, you know, with again, it's a, is it a heated chamber as well? Uh, can you tell me a little yes. bit about the printer specs, like the heated chamber, uh, build volume, all that? Right. So our build volume is about uh, uh, 600 in Z and about 715 X and 515 Y. Um, one of the reasons the Y is smaller than uh, X really is because we are trying to optimize the mass our motors can push because our wide gantry is that heavy linear rail that kind of moves with everything. So yeah. we had to choose like one axis to be bigger than the other. And we chose Y to be smaller than X. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's about, you know, five, like 750, 550 versus 600. It's a, um, our nozzle goes up to 550 degrees centigrade. Uh, we spec'd out our nozzles to go to 600 originally, but over time we found out really none of the materials needed to go to 600. So we kind of tabbed it in our software to go only up to 550. Um, and then our build chamber goes up to 200 degrees centigrade. Same as our uh, heated bed, which goes up to 200 degrees centigrade. Um, and the goal is to print any material you know, all the way from PLA, PCTG to peak and pack and carbon fiber, whatnot. Right. So yeah, that's about the printer. And the, the unique thing with our nozzle is um, it's a sapphire tip, which means you don't have to worry about abrasion, printing long hours, hundreds, thousands of hours on carbon fiber or glass fiber. It's, it is gonna stay as is, so. Yes, sapphire that, uh, you know, some of these materials that we're getting into, you know, in the high temp side of things are interesting to me because, you know, in our our day to day operations at Ascend Fab, we're really using um, a wide array of different printers, uh, but most of them are using, you know, just the standard brass nozzles, uh, maybe, maybe a steel nozzle um, on a couple of them. But uh, no, it's interesting to hear about, uh, you know, all those different materials and processes that go into it in order to try to print at that high temp, high speed uh, aspect. Are there, are yeah. there sizes of the nozzle as well? Yeah, we, we are limited to at a 0 0.4 and 0 0.8. Okay. Um, to, to start, I think pretty standard industry there. Um, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. When you print at that high speed, even for neat materials without carbon fiber, your nozzles will kind of, you know, change shape. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that was that was a other important factor when I talk about nozzle too. When you're trying to output so much, uh, having that sapphire tip was another very important factor for us. For sure. So yeah. when you when you print in that heated chamber as well, um, you know, one thing that I've noticed over the course of uh, the last few years of printing and trying to print really durable parts that are going on to people, um, you know, in your case, you guys are in the like aerospace industry as well. Um, you know, do you find that like having that heated chamber, you would actually um, try to anneal the part uh, either during and, and after printing um, that you might like leave it in there and bake it for a little while before you take that print out? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm already started to smile and laugh, Joe, because 
No, that is exactly one of the applications, right? I mean, I think I have uh, our customers have used the build chamber uh, very innovatively a couple of times. Uh, one, I think annealing is a pretty standard, right? That you can start to anneal as you print. Uh, there are pros and cons about it. One is um, then you get an uneven uh, annealing, especially if your part is too big. Then mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a challenge because then you'll have different annealing thing. Um, I I recommend typically users to kind of take one approach, either you know print amorphous and like use the chamber, leave it as an oven overnight. It's not like you're coming at twelve in the night and kind of you know just program the software to kind of do an annealing cycle. Right. Um, the so yes, I think we are using that and we have we have seen that basically it's a you know it's an oven and overnight prints just program the software to do that heat cycle, which is which is great. Uh, other thing I've seen people use the uh, build volume is to kind of, you know, if one of the dryers was gone and they couldn't dry their material in time and they they, uh, they just toss, as they're printing something, they toss, because of the big build volume, they toss a couple of their filaments in the bottom of the printer. Sure. Um, so it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, That's- as another print is going on, my spool for next day is drying there. I don't have to mm-hmm. plug in extra um uh, you know, electricity. So yeah, that is out there, the, innovative. You've got the triple triple purpose going on right there. Yes. You've got the the printing, uh, afterwards annealing and filament drying all in one system. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I I would say it's a little bit definitely bold trying to kind of do the <laughs> that I personally wouldn't do it, but uh, I think our customers have some of our customers have done it and been successful and uh, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. So tell me about uh, you know some of these materials that you guys are using. You know what have what materials have you developed? What were those purposes you developed them? And then what are those industries you see that they're being used in? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, so the good thing is, like I said, we started off as a materials company. So materials is very much still in our DNA. We have about forty four, forty three formulations of materials in our lab. Um, all filaments and which could also be, by the way, used in pellet printing because these are designed to be right. 3D printed. Uh, we don't offer pellets right now. Uh, we are looking into partnerships to see if uh, there is any good interest. Uh, but basically, these are designed with a specific 3D printing flow in mind, everything. Uh, but we have on our website, if you go, you can find about 25 filaments only because some of them are exclusive for some partners and some of them for internal purposes, whatnot. Um, but our focus is to kind of, one is high speed, right? Uh, because when you design the material for high speed or when you design for 3D printing, uh, you could also continue to print at a lower speed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there is some nuances about kind of trying to make a material print across all range, but yeah, I think one of the pieces for us is 3D printable, high speed and, um, you know, engineering applications really. So as part of engineering applications, uh, a lot of our customers are into uh, mold mold making. Uh, They use our carbon fiber filled high high temperature nylon and our PPSCF carbon fiber uh, to make uh, molds. I mean, these kind of last low pressure molding and a little bit of uh, maybe up to hundred shots of injection molding. Mm-hmm. That is one place uh, our customers have been very successful. 
The other place that we are very happy about is our, um, we also introduced uh, carbon nanotube filled ESD safe materials into 3D printing. And uh, I think there is dual purpose to it, uh, which we'll come to about in a, in a little bit later, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, so with the ESD safe, a lot of our, we have uh, several customers in electronics contract manufacturing. And, um, you know, these are the guys that are kind of making phones, laptops, and they're kind of assembling all of these, right? And the good thing is with the carbon nanotube-based ESD-safe materials, you're uh, not getting any dust, but getting the advantage of ESD-safe. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the tricky part is you don't want to put the C in carbon nanotubes or CNTs throughout the whole material. Then you change the material properties, then it might become brittle. Also, it is costly because carbon nanotubes are costly. Uh, we use our multi-layer filament technology where we apply a very thin layer of carbon nanotube coating on our filament that is able to do it. Um, and you know, the, the our, our material portfolio continues, uh, but uh, to pick few, I'm super proud of our PCTG material. It's really all purpose. It's a skin safe contact. It kind of, it is very, it is not as moisture sensitive as all of our other materials. It can print on a $100 printers like Ender and RepRap machines to all the way to, you know, $200,000 machines like us, super large print window, good chemical resistance, good toughness. I love that. Um, I'm very proud of that. And uh, very recently we have introduced um, Siloxone-based chemistries uh, into filament fabrication. This is the first time. Basically, what this does is bring toughness to the material, while also giving low temperature resistance, uh, so they can last without losing, without becoming brittle, negative twenty, negative thirty degrees uh, centigrade. So, hey, hey Joe. Yeah. Maybe yep. I lost you. No, you're good. Okay. Back here. Yeah. Just skipped a minute. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, yeah. So you know, those are the other our materials are called Duratem. It's like a flexible Ultem. You can sure. think of it that way. Um, so that's why we kind of named it Duratem, kind of rhyme with Ultem. Yeah. And uh, Altitude is the other material which is also siloxane based, which is essentially a drone material for us. It can withstand negative sixty degrees centigrade when you go high altitudes. And also super tough and flame resistant. So, um, yeah, a lot of engineering applications um, with a specific um, focus in mind for sometimes for ESD safe, sometimes for toughness, sometimes for temperature resistance. So, yeah, that's uh, a cool application for the 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 low temperatures. Honestly, I haven't talked with many people who are you know more focused on on low temp uh resistance you know when you when you get up into the atmosphere here um you know we did talk with zach burhop though last uh one of the last times here at fabrication friday on you know how he was printing well or, or he's sending uh, a printer and some files up to space you know for one of the companies that he was working with and uh right or i can imagine obviously those those low temps you know you really need something that's gonna withstand you know, that extreme, extreme environment. So that's pretty cool to see that you guys are, um, you know, involved on that side of things as well. Um, yeah. 
you know, talk to me a little bit more about these carbon nanotubes, because this is kind of what got <laughs> me interested, you know, in, the in the first place. Again, back in 2015, 2016, I was right. finishing up my my physics undergrad 2015 and just getting into 3D printing, um, you know, and for, for whatever reason, you know, the, the carbon nanotubes was a... Uh, it just stuck out to me. And I don't know if I was specifically looking for something like that um, or just kind of happenstance came across it from, you know, where you guys were starting out in, uh, in, in that kind of time frame. Yeah. So the, the yeah. carbon nanotubes, what, you know, how do you even get that into something that's going to be going into filament? And then, you know, what does that application look like once you get it out there in the real world? Yeah, Joe, I think, you know, the reason for us to really get into carbon nanotubes was really some of the work done by our uh, former uh, colleague and, uh, you know, our former head of materials, Brandon Sweeney. Uh, during his uh, PhD work, uh, what he has done is kind of how to improve the interrail bonding in 3D printing. And one way is basically, so plastic welding, similar to other welding is like, you know, to get the full strand you're trying to heat up these layers to certain temperature to for a certain time. And if you try to do that in situ, there's no way it's, it's gonna be pretty challenging. So what he kind of came up with is like, hey, if you infuse with carbon nanotubes and you know stimulate with microwaves later on, they're gonna you know get get that extra heat in there and kind of form a uniform bonding. That's how, that's how we came into carbon nanotubes. Really, the way to produce it is, um, one, you can kind of just diffuse the carbon nanotubes into entire material, and then it changes the material properties, sometimes in a, for some properties in a good way, some properties in a non-desirable way. Uh, but essentially, it's a very, um, I would say, a little bit of a fade attached to it, but not too complicated to blend carbon nanotubes into the polymer of choice. Uh, there's a little bit of art there, but it's um, most blenders and most plastic manufacturers can do that with their blenders. Uh, but the tricky part is how do you not get it across the whole material? Because now you change the properties of the full material and also price. So that's where we created our uh, multi-layer technology. So what happens is as you're extruding filament, um, we have a external dye that wraps around the filament that is coming out of our extruder. And that does a small coating just on the top of the filament. So that way we are able to just do the carbon nanotubes on the top layer of the filament. And now as you print it, the good thing is there is not too much mixing in a 3D printing nozzle. It is not a heavy turbulent um, or a heavy, you know, super high flow um, system. So most of the coding and, you know, the layers kind of come in in the same architecture, right? The carbon nanotube layer kind of stays outside. Also it is more viscous, so it doesn't want to go inside anyway. Once that happens, you have this uh, almost like a sandwich, right? At a layer by layer, it's like a neat material, carbon nanotube coating, neat material, now you apply microwaves to it, it's gonna heat up and kind of fuse all over. Uh, that was his kind of research. Um, we kind of adopted and scaled it up into filament making, all of it. 
and also we kind of started to build our printers with microwave. Then we quickly figured putting microwave in a metal cage is not a great idea. Uh, so yeah. uh, we kind of uh, pivoted uh, in a, like, you know, found still, uh, essentially what you're trying to do is put electromagnetic energy there, right? Like carbon nanotubes can absorb this electromagnetic radiation and turn it into heat. So instead of microwaves, we kind of moved into radio waves, which converted to your plasma. So that's how we came about. We developed our underhead plasma system that prints along with the nozzle and kind of, you know, heat up the layers as they go, give uh, that extra heat. And um, yeah, we are still continuing to develop that uh, technology. A lot of physics involved, uh, too much, uh, um, you know, too much controls need to be figured out. So it is still in our lab. On a day-to-day -day basis, we still see good results from it. Uh, we need to figure out how to kind of, you know, package it into a way where we can put in people's hands yet. So sure. that's the story of the carbon nanotubes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was the main reason. Eventually, we found other use case, which is ESD safe. Right, right. No, that's that's really, really neat, though. I mean, having that, you know, application of those sandwiching the layers, um, we've we've kind of found a, a similar thing when uh, printing with the Mark Forged, you know, continuous fiber fabrication there, um, you know, printing the actual continuous fiber strands into sandwiching between layers of nylon. Um, so I can imagine how these carbon nanotubes would be placed, you know, in a very similar fashion. Um, yeah, when, you know, the physics geek in me is just like screaming right now where, you know, come on, carbon, <laughs> you know, carbon nanotubes, that kind of micro scale going into helping to solidify a part and then having, you know, some external either heat source or microwaves, like you mentioned, you know, being able to really combat this, you know, Z layer bonding, you know, issue that uh, that is inherent to the process of what we're doing, right? So, right, right. It's interesting to hear that you guys have kind of tackled that from a couple of different ways here. Yeah, you know, yeah. I think, uh, thanks, Joe. I think really it's about you know not only machine but also material machine combination. Really, and I think I think the first use case for us actually for this was prosthetics. Um, you know, because when we looked at it, the the reality was that. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, even if you get isotropic bonding uh, for very demanding applications like, uh, um, you know, military or um, airplanes or trains or, you know, big things like that, it's going to take decades, people moving from metal to plastic. So we were like, okay, people are already doing, you know, prosthetics in the, um, you know, check sockets with you know, 3D printing plastics and whatnot, why can't we do definitive sockets as well? Well, if you can figure out the Z-layer bonding, maybe this is the right use case. Um, so that was one of the first um, motivations as well to kind of uh, create this system and combination, so. Sure, yeah, I mean, with, with prosthetics uh, and orthotics for that matter, matter you know, there's, um, the, those issues of Z-layer bonding, the issues of what orientation do you print the part at to try to optimize that uh, structural integrity as well. And then, uh, you know, with the print orientation, can, do you in, instigate other potential 3D printing problems like 
warping that's ensued or yep. you know, other um you know other other issues that might come up when you're actually trying to physically print these parts in the most durable way possible by this right. technology right so yep um you know that's uh that's everything that we're looking towards you know in the prosthetics field and orthotics is trying to make these you know end use devices for people uh, actually You'd be happy to know that I have used your PCTG before, uh, printing nice. printing test sockets uh, yeah. you know, just uh, just a couple years ago, and yeah, printed printed beautifully. You know, was very nice and crystal clear. Um, you know, and and since you know, we've we've been involved with a lot of different companies now and different printers and different materials, but um, you know, everyone has this uh, kind of preconceived notion in the prosthetics field of carbon fiber carbon fiber is the one material to go to right like you know so uh in in some ways when i look at carbon fiber i see well sure it might be um you know when it's traditionally fabricated and laminated it has amazing strength properties and very lightweight right um but one thing that i see with with carbon fiber is that it's inherently extremely stiff um, you know, and so we might not want some of those stiffness qualities while trying to gain the same or similar, you know, strength properties. So, um, you know, have, what is your take on that with, you know, we're, we're using carbon fiber, we have HPMJF printing, typically using mm-hmm. PA12 or PA11 nylon for these, you know, more definitive style sockets that are actually able to go out on people you know, for more than a year, for sure, up to three to five years is really that kind of timeline. So, you know, what, what's your take on that with uh, your your past involvement in the prosthetics industry? Yeah, no, I think obviously I don't have as much deep insight in the industry like you, Joe, but, uh, but you know, I'll kind of talk about it from the material perspective because, you know, I, I'm, uh, that's what I'm, I'm more aware of is, so we've created about four materials that we kind of uh, obtained skin safe certificates for, uh, for pro, you know, uh, prosthetics and orthotics, right? Our PCTG, our um, carbon fiber nylon, and our um, carbon fiber PET, and our TPUs. Uh, the goal though, I think one of our carbon fiber nylon, especially what we call it as PSCF, it's formulated and actually we've um, said, okay, it needs to be a little bit ductile as well. So the good thing is if you formulate your nylon, nylon inherently likes moisture, no doubts about it, which is not good if you wanna print with it, right? Like just when you wanna print with it, it's not good. But if you optimize it enough where the absorption rate is lower, but it can absorb more overall, right? Hey, my saturation moisture is, 5%, but my intake rate is very slow. If you can kind of, you know, uh, formulate your material that way, that is a good at both worlds because before printing, you can maintain your filament at a very low moisture because it is not uptaking fast. You print it with it, then you can do a hydration process, which is a fancy name to soak the, you know, pod in water at a certain temperature for a certain time. And now it has absorbed and saturated that 5%, 5.5% moisture, making it softer and ductile. And that's the approach we have taken on our PACF 
where it's a slow absorption, high saturation moisture material. Uh, good for printing, but also after printing, you can do a hydration step and lose some stiffness on it. Um, that is one way, uh, I think. Um, so if you have not tried out pre-SEF, take a shot and see. Um, the other good way I'm thinking is we've recently been uh, working with a company called Limber. Uh, they're taking this approach of design um, of the prosthetic itself, which is kind of dealing with some of that stiffness component, right? Can you design your ankle or the, you know, the shape of the prosthetic itself where it is more, the design itself gives that more ductile uh, facility overall. So now your material property becomes less relevant and your design feature kind of stands out. Um, so that's another important, I think, interesting and a new take, I would say. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that's as far as I can talk about on that. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a, an interesting point there, though, with the the uptake of the amount of moisture that these materials absorb, you know, over time. Um, I, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but, you know, how, how about, how do you actually go about that process of, um, you know, formulating the compounds, you know, the, those plastics to, um, you know, to, to behave differently like that? Yeah, no, I can talk about it, Joe. I think it's not, um, you know, secretive. I think, oh, I mean, the specific formulation is, but I think the process, um, basically, so we have very uh, limited in-house um, chemical synthesis, I'll say, we have a lot of knowledge about it. So we work with our um, um, supplier partners who have these labs actually. What we do about it is like, hey, um, the, the reality about all of this is uh, how much of the um, chemicals and you know atoms that like moisture are open, right? And how quickly are they open? So it all depends, the, the polymer has two things, the backbone, which is like the long chain, mm -hmm. and then it has branches, which is, you know, how eventually how heavy can you get your molecule without being long. So trying to optimize your um, branching and back chain length is number one. Number two is, you know, also kind of, um, how do you, what kind of, uh, how, how much do you have open, right? Like, sure. okay, if you want, so for example, very theoretical, right? Very theoretical here. Um, well, you have a big chain with 20 branches and polyamide, right? Nylons or polyamides, right. amides like water, right? So if, let's say each of this branch has two open amide groups, and if all the branches can't stick out, then they want moisture immediately, right? right? Because they're all sticking out, they want it. Uh, instead, if you can make that branches kind of stuck inside, now they're not easily accessible, but they still will like moisture at some point. So that is the trick to kind of slowing it down. But if you close up that amide group, then it doesn't take moisture. So it's about having as many amide groups open for, you know, uh, moisture uptake, but also have them tucked in instead of facing outwards. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a stereochemistry and a chemistry problem. We typically yeah. 
kind of go back to our suppliers, talk with them and ask them for different formulations. We work with them because we don't have in-house synthesis. Right. Um, but uh, that's, a, that's a typical process. Yeah, with with that, my initial thought would be, okay, so the the longer you, you make your chain, right? Does that have any correlation to that end material being more flexible or more stiff? Yes, yes, your chain length will have a big effect on your end properties, um, but also it will have big effect on 3D printability. So there is a sweet spot in terms of you know how much you want to branch versus how much you want to chain uh, to have an optimum flow value, uh, which in turn has effect on your final strength. Right. So, um, yeah, you don't want it too long. Um, then you're kind of you know then you kind of get into that. Well, it's gonna be, um, it's not ideal, right? I mean, it's not gonna be ideal for three printing for flow perspective if you if it is too long. Uh, but also, you don't want it too short, then you lose your properties. The longer it is, generally it is stronger. You can kind of correlate that way and it's very general basis, but also the longer it is, it is harder to flow. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of want to optimize it. That's interesting to try to conceptualize and think about, you know, okay, so the materials that I'm using, you know, my, my day-to-day uh, printing, you know, the, the TPU, PETG, um, the foaming TPU, Vario short, you know, yeah. like how all of these, um, you know, you do have to kind of have this like chemical and material science background a little bit if you want to try to optimize, you know, some of these prints that we're getting um, to understand how, you know, mechanically these layers are actually bonding together, um, you know, and that's that's something that we're trying to, uh, you know, to help and push forward here, you know, through the through the podcast as well as just kind of generally um, you know, increase this level of education around like, okay, what are we actually physically trying to do with, uh, it's not as simple as just putting material into the machine and hitting print, right? Um, you know, even if you do have good print settings that are already optimized for a specific device, they might not be so great on the next device, um, right. you know, depending on the, the, the print layer times and everything like that. Um, so it's just interesting to try to conceptualize that and for some of our listeners here who are, you know, either tinkering at home with uh, small desktop printers or, you know, also involved on the very industrial side of printing like you are, um, you know, just an interesting, you know, uh, way to think about it that I think is going to instill some uh, some things to think about for sure. Um, you know, when when someone goes to buy their next spool of filament and maybe they're going to Ascension or maybe they're... Uh, <laughs> You know, considering yeah. some of those, you know, chemical properties of what they're trying to achieve. So that's pretty neat. Um, yeah. You know, with uh, with that kind of development that you've had at Essentium so far, um, you know, can you touch on a little bit more of like, okay, where where is Essentium going from here? Like I I just heard from Zach Burhop again that uh, you know, three D fuel uh, you know, has yes. been has been now involved in the company. Uh, I haven't used any of their filament myself, but can you can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I think one uh, core piece for us was, uh, you know, making in USA for SNTM, like, you know, everything we design here, make here and all of that. And when you look back at it, um, we have been on the very industrial side of things, even though we have capabilities that can cater to the broader range. And uh, as I 
think last year or so, we kind of uh, um, thought on the material business side of, okay, what are we generally, where are we at on the, you know, basis? The the thing that stuck out to us was we have very, very few customers who are on the, you know, home printing side, very few customers on the sure. um, enthusiast side that are kind of, you know, looking at it. And when we look back, well, one of the things was we are super focused on this engineering grade filament. So which means two things. One, it is pricier. Two, it is also, you need a little bit of upgraded printers uh, to be able to print them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where we're like, well, we have so much more knowledge to offer. Why don't like, but when you look at it, 80% of 3D printers are actually the guys who are, you know, doing it on their own, the home printers or hobby printers or the makers. Like, I mean, all of this knowledge we are developing, all of this uh, things we are doing, we are not able to cater to, to the bigger community. Like, okay, how can we solve this? And uh, the factor for us was to then kind of, you know, start getting into this community um, of all the makers. So as part of that, we looked at, okay, we want to, we don't want to do it by ourselves. It's basically in reinventing the wheel, probably other people have already done. So when we looked at it, 3D Fuel struck our um, you know, um, piece where they have done everything in-house. They have done all USA made. They've sourced materials in USA, which kind of stuck um, in the DNA of what we are doing as well. And the other piece they have been very efficient that we couldn't figure out was the colors. They offer 40 different colors on PLA. I we have three. Uh, so I I think that's also the other different piece that we never envisioned or thought about because in the engineering world, the functionality was the biggest piece and not focusing on colors as much. Well, I mean, some of our color, customers want colors on the engineering side as well, but they're not asking for 20 colors, right? They're like, okay, can you do two different colors, three different colors? Sure. They just want, I want a difference between line one, line two, line three, that's it. So that's where it's like, okay, uh, that's when we actually didn't look any further. We engaged with um, John uh, at 3D Fuel. We brought him in house and then, uh, you know, partnered with them. And now we're, uh, you know, you know, tapping into the maker world. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, we are very happy with that. The biggest thing for us is to kind of apply, bring our knowledge and bring our material manufacturing expertise to all the makers. Uh, because, because that really is constituting 80% of the industry right now, which uh, we want to kind of, you know, hey, yes, uh, what's the point of all this knowledge if you can't use it to the people that are using it? Okay. So, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah no, I've, yeah. I've kind of started to take that approach as well. You know, I I love the the aspects of trying to stay as local as we possibly can. Um, you know, I think 3D printing, uh, the development of it, you know, from materials and hardware standpoint is still pretty much in its infancy here in the U.S. at least. It sounds like the rest of the world has been very more so involved on, you know, that kind of development for materials and and hardware. You know, the the couple of printers that I have, you know, shown behind me here, those were both made and sourced, you know, in the U.S., um, you know, so that's nice to see more companies, you know, staying more local. Um, you know, I know, I know, again, I, I'm bringing up Zach again, because we had a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, he was so excited. Uh, I, and I loved his excitement around, um, you know, being able to source filament, you know, close by, you know, with it being right down the road from him close by, you know, being able to maybe walk off the street and grab a couple spools of filament when you want them. Um, you know, that's, that's been something that I've been trying to start to build here at Ascent Fab as well. You know, we're a filament reseller for, um, four different companies now. And, um, nice. you know, that, that side of the business is growing quite rapidly. Uh, and, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with like trying to source, you know, good materials that we know work, uh, specifically with our workflows and, you know, they've been repeatable in terms of diameter and, and coloring and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I do, I do appreciate that approach and, uh, you know, definitely have to get my, my hands on some 3d fuel filament, you know, and yeah. more essential filament for sure. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Joe. Yeah. I mean, you know, we'd, yeah, uh, let's connect and make sure, but, uh, we'd love to kind of, I think one thing we're doing at our physical store here, as it comes into full swing a little bit, I mean, we just started that, right. But, uh, uh we are also going to offer, uh, like a factory tour. Because we literally make it behind the door, I think once a quarter or so, we will kind of, you know, do a sign up and let the local folks come in, walk in and uh, see basically like a brewery tour or chocolate factory tour. But, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, can we make it as interesting and kind of, you know, look at the intricacies of uh, making a good quality filament to the outside world. So, yeah, we're really excited about that. Um, yeah, if you're in town or if you want to make a trip, you're 100% welcome to drop by and uh, we can show you all we do. Yeah, thanks. And I'll definitely have to take you up on that sometime. Um, you know, I know uh, Form Next uh, was just in in Austin, right? So right, right, right. I, I'm I'm assuming you were at that show. Like, were you? And and how did that go? Yeah. So I'll say I was I was at that show. I uh, I would say, uh, like, I think my expectations were looking at the AMAG and you know the big shows and the Form Next in Germany, which is like the biggest show in 3D printing you can go to, yeah. uh, you know, and then this was very small, right? It was a half a hall with about um, 30 exhibitors, 35 exhibitors. So it was a little bit, when I walked in with this big expectations, it was underwhelming for me overall. Sure, <laughs> so, sure. But I think the level of interaction was very high quality, right? Um, because it's the first time that it's possible that not many people were willing to kind of say, put a booth out there, and also probably everybody used up their marketing budget in AMUG and Rapid earlier in the year. Uh, so I can see why there were less number of boots there, but uh, the but it was really good level of interaction. The quality of interaction was nice because it was, uh, you know, smaller number of boots. So there was like more time for you to kind of go deeper in conversations with folks out there. So, mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah, at the, at the big farm next in Germany, there was there is a lot to unpack, so you're kind of in a hurry to kind of jump like boot to boot to kind of make sure you touch base with everyone. So you're kind of in a hurry, but mm -hmm. here I think that kind of enabled you like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna spend a little bit more time talk deep stuff. So yeah, it was nice. Yeah, nice. no, that's that's yeah. good to hear. Uh, with myself being at the you know American Orthotic Prosthetic Association yeah. National Assembly last week. Um, I, I would say I, I had that time to go around, uh, you know, there weren't too, too many vendors and I feel like people are still coming back around after COVID to being open <laughs> traveling and, 
if one of these conferences offers anything virtually, then they kind of question that and say, well, do I have to go, you know, what is that, what is that travel and, uh, and or for companies marketing budget look like? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the show was pretty good. I think from, from some attendance and there's a lot of interest in the digital space, um, you know, from the company standpoint, I feel like uh, a lot of people trying to get into this market of prosthetics uh, who are who are either 3D printing companies or software or 3D scanners. Um, you know, it's interesting to, you know, just be on that kind of front uh, forward facing to those specific customers, the clinicians, um, you know, for uh, where our you know, industry is headed. I definitely think there's a, a lot more room for for growth in that application process of different printers, different materials, um, and then you know, getting out to some of these conferences is definitely well worth uh, these clinicians' time too, because they need to see what is the latest and greatest out there, you know, and be able right. to experience things, you know, just in the three D printing industry. You know, I think uh, for the for the certified prosthetist orthotist and uh you know the company owners listening to this you know i i definitely you know you know urge you to go out to maybe some of these 3d printing industry conferences as well to see you know how other people are are approaching some of these same problems that you know we're we're typically having with printing some other you know different devices here in this field um it it directly relates to what's going on in and under other industries Absolutely, Joe. Very well said. Um, yeah, I I agree with uh, what you're saying, and and I I think even the like as an extension to that, you I think most likely probably people can take inspiration from your shop and what you are doing, and uh, so and it it is not as cost uh, uh, upfront cost as it used to be in the past because nowadays there's printers in about you know that could do at least the check sockets, if not the definitives, under a $2,000 printer, right. uh, really. I think, um, you know, there's there's really a lot of uh, upside to it. I mean, one of the biggest things as I talk about upside uh, is in collaboration with Rotary Club in Dallas. I mean, this was, everything was put together by them. Uh, we were just partnering and helping them, I guess was uh, they had this project to print about 100 sockets for kids in Tanzania, mm-hmm. um, like because of all the different things going out there. I mean, they don't have access to clinics. They don't have access to medical. Even the government doesn't have much resources. So what the Rotary Club of Dallas did was kind of put together a 3D printing program to pack a printer amount of filament and a software that, you know, like you're talking about scanners, the software has a simple scanner. Mm-hmm. It scans the kid's legs and, uh, you know, uh, turn it into an STL and throw it onto this printer. Uh, we, were, we feel uh, happy and fortunate to kind of be part of that project where we contributed our filament and we recommended, uh, you know, printers uh, for them. But yeah, it was as simple as that day. It wasn't much budget, right? It, it was very small and uh, they were helping. I think on the first phase they helped about 100 kids and uh you know uh so yeah again that's one side of it but it it could be a small investment as you know thing to get started and then go right. from there so 
Yeah, it's definitely easy to get started. And then you get down the rabbit hole of all these different <laughs> exciting things like carbon nanotubes. And then yeah. <laughs> you know, you're off to the races and on to another yes. level, you know. So uh, I, I appreciate, you know, what Essentium and, and you guys are doing over there to kind of push forward some of these, you know, material science aspects of, um, you know, the the high speed extrusion, you know, how we're printing these different materials and then what's actually going into them. So, you know, nicely done there. Uh, I'm excited to continue to, you know, watch what Ascension is doing and, you know, absolutely. If I'm ever out your way uh, in Texas, I'll definitely reach out and, uh, you know, try to get the, uh, the full tour there. That'd be pretty neat. Absolutely. Joe, you're welcome anytime. So. Yeah. Well, uh, anything else for our listeners and, uh, you know, if they'd like to get in contact with you, we'll have stuff in the show notes here to, to reach out, but, uh, any, uh, anything else there for the customer, for the, uh, for the listeners. I, I think, you know, the statement you said about, Hey, there is a lot more upside for the industry. I think really, that's it. Really. There's a lot of, uh, not only SMTM, right. There is other companies that are pushing the boundaries, trying to kind of, you know, do more, um, fundamental knowledge out there. So I'd encourage everyone to continue to, you know, jump in uh, 3D printing because the entry point is nothing and go from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, if at any point, if you are interested in like uh, more engineering stuff or even like want to get into the real basics, feel free to contact me or, you know, any of my team members too. We would be more than happy to always talk about the fundamentals of 3d printing so no that sounds great thank you very much Nirup, for coming on the the fabrication friday podcast this week with us um you know i appreciate your time and looking forward to some of the response here from the listeners um yeah we appreciate it 